This podcast is proud to be part of the Blueberry Network. That's blueberry with no E's dot com. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of Entrepreneur on Fire, and you're listening to Transpersonal Radio with Angela Lynn Gibson. Remember, your thoughts upload your reality. Think wisely and always prepare to ignite. Welcome. Welcome to Transpersonal Radio. Transpersonalradio.com. Real talk for real life. Inspiring podcasts. Exploring personal empowerment. empowerment. And transformation. Through parapsychology, spirituality, and how your thoughts upload. upload your reality. And now your host, Angela. Angela L. Gibson. First of all, thank you for listening, and a big thank you to my loyal listeners who have stayed with me throughout the years. Welcome to all you new listeners. I've been producing Transpersonal Radio since 2010, not without challenges for sure, but I'm proud that I'm in the sixth year of Transpersonal Radio and it continues to get better every year. I'm going to ask my listeners to do me a favor. If you find value in this podcast, please be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, or download the iPhone app or Android app. And please, share this radio show with anyone you think may find it helpful, thought-provoking, or interesting. Also, please leave a great review for me on iTunes, Stitcher, or Spreaker, as that will help the reputation of the show and get it recognized by a wider audience. There's a lot of work that goes into creating and producing a podcast and radio show. Here's the thing, folks. Over the years, I've had some really amazing guests on this show who speak from their core, who get real, who speak from a place of authenticity and integrity. These guests bring their A-game, providing you with quality content that can really make your life better. So by telling everyone you know about Transpersonal Radio and getting the word out, these guests really can make the world a better place. Thanks again for listening. Hello, Transpersonal Radio listeners. We are in for a real treat this evening. Our guest tonight is Ruben Uriarte of MUFON, the Mutual UFO Network. A little background on Ruben. He graduated from Cal State University at Hayward East Bay with a BA in Psychology and Latin American Studies. Ruben has been involved with a large network of research organizations. He has served as a California State Coordinator for Crop Circle Phenomena Research International, and he was a former research director for Beyond Boundaries, a company specializing in taking tour groups to various UFO hotspots around the world. Ruben is currently a member of MUFON as a field investigator and currently serves as a board member for OPUS, Organization for Paranormal and Support Understanding. He is also the State MUFON Director for Northern California, and Deputy Director of Investigations and International Affairs. Ruben has been interviewed on many local and national radio shows and television documentaries on the subject of UFO phenomenon, such as the Discovery Channel's UFOs Over Earth, the Learning Channel's Monster Hunters, the History Channel's UFO Files, UFO Hunters and Ancient Aliens, the Travel Channel's How UFOs Crashed My Vacation, and the Discovery Science Channel's Unexplained Files. Ruben has authored a number of books co-written with Texas UFO researcher Noe Torres about major UFO crashes and other historical cases that have occurred along the border of southwestern United States and Mexico. Ruben's books include Mexico's Roswell, 1st and 2nd edition, The Other Roswell, Aliens in the Forest, The Coyome Incident, and Falling Angel. Ruben worked as a contributor and translator with Noe Torres on their recent book project, UFOs Over Mexico, Encounters with Unidentified Aerial Phenomena with authors Carlos Guzman and Alfonso Salazar. I first met Ruben at the Sacramento UFO Con in October of 2015, when I interviewed him for the award-winning TV show, Paranormal Insights. Ruben, thank you so much for taking time out of your really busy schedule to speak with us this evening. I'm so excited to have you on the show. Well, thank you, Angela, for the invitation. Uh, it was great to connect with you there in Sacramento, and 
and also uh, the happening on your show. Thank you so much. Absolutely. I'm so excited to dive in and get into, into some really great topics. I have a lot of questions, and we have some great questions as well from Facebook, Twitter, and Reddit. So, uh, again, Transpace, Transpersonal Radio listeners, don't forget, you can reach out to me on Twitter at Real Trans Radio or the Transpersonal Radio Facebook page with questions you'd like to ask our guests before the show. And you can uh, live chat or call in during the show. Just go to transpersonalradio.com for details. So, Ruben, before we dive into specific questions, why don't you give us a little update on the latest interesting news in the world of UFOs and ET encounters? What's been happening out there recently? Well, there's been quite a lot going on there, Angela. Um, we in MUFON, we are in contact with a number of uh, different organizations. We are international. Uh, we have close to 4,000 members, and we have a number of chapters uh, in many countries. And if someone was uh, interested in knowing more about us, obviously we have a website, which is called MUFON.com. And you could really get caught up with what some of the latest activities that, that have been occurring uh, throughout the world. Uh, specifically, uh, we have uh, information on how to become a field investigator. And we have information as as far as people ask this question, actually, Angela, is, gee, you know, how out of all the cases that you guys investigate, which ones are the best? Well, we have a scientific review board that selects the 10 top cases for each year. And so if you go to the website, we have them from 2012, 2013, 2014, now working at 2015. So there, there's a lot that we're doing. I've been with the organization now for approximately 25 years. Wow, outstanding. So served a lot. Yeah, so there's, there's a lot. And I, I, something I wanted to share uh, with you, and this is really my first announcement to make it, um, you know, a lot's been going on in Cuba. Recently, uh, as you know, the president just went down there, and then yes. the Pope—I mean, the Pope first, and then secondly, the, the, the um, uh, President Obama. And as you know, there's trying to improve in relations between both countries. Well, Cuba has a UFO organization, and so we're trying to work very closely uh, with the Cuban or, uh, organization, and uh, and because of that, uh, we make contact. Um, right now, I'm serving the role as Assistant National Director for Cuba. Oh my gosh, that's and exciting! <laughs> <laughs> so that means I hope I hope to uh, go to Cuba hopefully this year. Oh, how exciting! <laughs> go to a, go go to a, a uh, UFO conference. I'm going to have me a Cuban cigar. I'm going to have me a, a Cuba libre. <laughs> doesn't get any better than that, right? Right. <laughs> Now I know why you really do this work. There it is. <laughs> yeah, I'm really, really working very hard. But that's been a lot, a lot of networking, and, and that's kind of like a general picture. But um, I, I, I've been involved primarily with MUFON because I want to know. You know, I yeah. want to see what's what's going on with with say uh, out there, and we do have a uh, a mission statement. And our mission statement is basically the scientific study of UFOs for the benefit of humanity through investigations and research. And some of the questions that we are trying to address are, are UFOs and aliens real? You know, exactly. Who are they? Mm -hmm. Where do they come from? I'm sure these are the questions you're going to ask me. How long have they been here? Why are they here? What mm -hmm. do they want? Well, you know, we can only speculate, but. Yeah, you know, that's a pretty much of a general perspective, but I, I've also had, had my own personal experiences. Yes, and I want to get into um, that. Makes it. Mm -hmm. I, I want to get into that. And you know, Ruben, one of the reasons that I really enjoyed talking to you so much at the UFO Con in 2015 is because you also, you have a science background and, and um, you are pretty well grounded and you know, as we've discussed before, I have a science background, and so I'm one of those people that, you know, I like to keep the woo-woo grounded in science, and I like to look at evidence. And, you know, we, we've covered this when we were at UFOCon, but I'll repeat tonight for, you know, for our listeners who weren't there. I, I always think of Fox Mulder's poster, I want to believe, whenever we're talking about UFOs, you know, and, and I think I shared this with you before. I'm, I happen to be somebody who's still a little bit on the fence 
uh, about UFOs and extraterrestrial contact and abductions, and you just um, addressed that when you were saying, you know, these are the questions that we want to look at, but we want to look at it scientifically. And I know there are a lot of skeptics, there are a lot of believers, there are a lot of experiencers listening tonight. And on my show, my goal is to provide a space for varying viewpoints and experiences while allowing everyone to make up their own minds. So if you would please share with us, Ruben, your first alien or UFO interaction and how that impacted you. Well, I um, had my very first visual observation of something that was really out of the ordinary when I was about eight years old, eight or nine years old. I lived in Oakland, and I remember seeing a uh, brown object just above. uh, I I lived in the playground, and there was this library right uh, on the right-hand side, and then I lived on the left-hand side. But in between, there was this playground, and I remember looking up, and I saw this this thing that I first thought was a strange-looking balloon. And then I kept looking at it, and it, and I, it was shiny, but it didn't move. It just stayed there. And then I just had this strange feeling of, of being being watched. Well, then... Uh, Later, I just kept playing, and it went away. I didn't see it anymore. Well, the, the next day, I believe, or maybe it might have been several other days, or preceding that, or after what I saw, uh, I was playing with my friends in the same playground. And then all of a sudden, I saw one of my friends pointing up, and he said, Oh, wow, look, a flying saucer. Wow. And I looked up, and <clears throat> I, it was gone by the time I looked up, but... I had a feeling it had to be what I had seen previously, that, that object. And, you know, years later, um, I, I, I'm finding out that other people have seen these strange uh, round spheres or globes also right around the same time frame that I did here in the East Bay. So that stayed with me. And it wasn't until maybe uh, later in life I read this one book named uh, from uh, Whitley Strieber, on um, communion and that that focus on Woodley Strieber's experience with the whole alien abduction question and in there he mentioned MUFON and mentioned a a number of other interesting things to ufology which I wasn't aware of but it fascinated me and then from there I picked up another book uh, from Bud Hopkins on missing time and I picked up that book as well and then I attended my first MUFON meeting and um, I went through training, uh, became a field investigator. Uh, and I'll talk about the field investigator process in a moment there, Angela. Sure. But I, I became a, an investigator, and, oh, I, I started getting some amazing cases. And I started to um, work very closely with other investigators. And then uh, slowly I, w- I worked up the ranks, and I was appointed as a uh, assistant state director. And later on, I became appointed as state director, and now I'm working on an international level as well as still maintaining uh, the the state director position. But I work very closely. We have a great team of people throughout MUFON. I have a really great active group here in Northern California. Um, We have some very dedicated field investigators, and I have have some top-notch people that are also part of the leadership. I have Devlin uh, Rooney, and I have Mr. Chuck Reaver, and I have a lot of other uh, other uh, great people that are also uh, getting involved in helping, trying to find out what's out there. You know, yes. what what is the truth? What is going on? Exactly, exactly. So I have a question here uh, from Eminent Disclosure. That's the name he uses online. He asks, I don't remember where, but I heard or read that some extraterrestrials were contacting MUFON and collaborating with them. Can he comment on this? So have you heard anything about that, Ruben? What do you think? Uh, if, uh, well, it depends on what I think I'm, uh, what I'm trying to, from what I understand from his question is that if we had, we as an organization or certain people have had direct contact with uh, these entities or beings, uh, to my knowledge, no. Um, however, however, um, we get so many cases from people who do, from the whole abduction scenario Mm -hmm. to people who've had some, somewhat contact with the occupants 
And um, I'll, I'll go into that in, in a few minutes, too, as far as the database, which is part of the evidence trail that we try to maintain because we work through statistics as well uh, there, Angela. Excellent. And so if someone wants to become a field investigator, you were talking about you were going to address sort of how that whole thing works. Obviously, there has to be some sort of rigorous training here. So uh, what would one do to become a field investigator? Yeah. In general, um, one can go to our website again and then select how to become a field investigator. But what that entails, Angela, is... um, First of all, someone who has the time, um, who wants to become involved in going out there or, or interviewing people, um, going through the whole process. But in the field investigator training, uh, we have a manual, and you basically study the manual. And then you take an exam, which is based, which uh, you, once you become certified, you need at least have an 80% passing score. Once you become certified, then uh, you work work very closely with your state director or the chief investigator, and gradually we start having you um, go out and start these investigations. In addition to that, all these cases that you do uh, goes into a database, and right now we have over 71,000 cases that have been reported um, and many of these cases, uh, well, most of them are here in the United States, Angela, but again, we do get them reported throughout the world, and we have people who are staying on top of this, and it's amazing some of the information that that we're learning. Did, did you know uh, all these, for example, um, people when they go out and they, they uh, at night or during the day, they see an object, they try to describe it and we have uh, at least 23 different categories of objects that people can describe as close as possible to for example you know that might include uh, circles spheres egg-shaped objects uh, disc shape um, the the uh, triangles for example and we, we maintain a database on the amount of sightings that we get for example if I was to ask you Angela, what, what do you think is the most reported item that we get on on our database? What do you think that would be? Would it be triangles, flying saucers? You know, uh, that, that's a great question. And for me, I, obviously, I'm going to go for the typical saucer because that's all you hear about all the time, right? But I, I bet <laughs> you that's not it. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty close, though. But, um, like, I, I started looking at our stats, and we, we had over – in 2000, just for 2015, mm-hmm. we had over 1,032 cases of triangle-shaped objects. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the flying saucers, uh, we had close to about close to 985, and then we have oval shape, which is kind of similar to flying saucers. Mm-hmm. Well, about 1,500 uh, uh, cases uh, in regards to the disc. Uh, the boomerang shapes is quite interesting. Mm-hmm. We had about two, 223 boomerang reports. Mm-hmm. Kind of follows what similar to the V-shaped object. It looks uh, can almost like a boomerang. Like This is similar to what was seen over the uh, uh, the Phoenix lights. People have reported seeing it's an enormous V-shaped object. We had about 92 of those. And then we've, uh, but the biggest um, amount, or the most reported object uh, is the spheres. Or No kidding. Yeah, we got over 2,000 cases of spheres. It tends to be the top uh, ranking object that's most reported. Why? I don't know. Uh, it's amazing. They come either they're transparent, mm-hmm. translucent, uh, either uh, they're orange color hmm. um, or silver, metallic. They come in odd colors. I myself, Angela, I saw three uh, orbs in England back in 1994. Um it was amazing. These things were hovering above a field. It's when I was going to crop circle, um, on the crop circle expedition, mm-hmm. on my very first one. And I remember looking out in the horizon, I saw this one ball of light wow. just shoot straight up. And then um, I grabbed my binoculars and I looked at it and I said, whoa, this thing is just like a plasma, uh, a bright orange plasma color. 
And it looked, and but when I looked at it, it looked like a half dome. It had like a half dome to it. You know, hmm. it was flat on the bottom, and then it had this dome. Within it uh, descended, and then I, and then I said to myself, "Shoot, I wish I could show themselves again. I want my friends to see it." And I was yelling, I was screaming, and it, and it got all my friends' attention. And all of a sudden, boom, boom, boom! Three, three of these bright lights just flew right up. Wow. And they they form into like a triangle, and I'm looking at these things. I'm looking through my binoculars, and then one of my friends grabbed his camcorder, his professional photographer, and he as soon as he raised his camcorder to film them, something told me they're not gonna allow themselves to be filmed. Mm-hmm. I felt that. Mm-hmm. Sure enough, they disappear. Wow. <laughs> Wow. Next day we found next day we found a fantastic crop circle that, that was shaped like a galaxy right in the vicinity of where those uh, globes were, were seen. That's fascinating. Now, obviously, so there are sightings. England is a huge area for crop circles, and I want to get into that a little bit later. But uh, obviously, there are there have been multiple UFO sightings in England. There have been multiple. Uh, sightings uh, around Mexico. I want to get into that a little bit later. Uh, obviously, a lot of sightings around the U.S. What are what are some of the top countries that are reporting in right now that say? Oh, well, there, uh, normally though. Uh, okay, yeah, now there's something I need to to share with you that the database that we have uh, primarily it's all in English. Um, we do have the means to translate our information, but um, many of the countries that we do get, uh, that we receive quite a bit, is from primarily the UK, and then to be followed by Canada, or New Zealand, or an or and then uh, or yeah, other English speaking countries. Okay. Then it starts breaking down into the other ones. So now I I think this is my thought. It's mainly because of the language barrier that we have. Uh. Right. Even though, so the, but we do get cases from all the other parts of the world as well. Mm-hmm. But uh, as far as statistically, um, if you were to ask me, Ruben, you know, how about here in the United States? Uh, I would have to tell you, California. We've always ranked number one. Fascinating. Okay. And, 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 uh, and then and then from there are there are some other regions as well. Um, let me get give you kind of an idea um, in terms of California. Then it's Texas. Then it's the Florida area, and then then it may change to Pennsylvania, Michigan, hmm. New York, or Arizona. And then if we looked along the Pacific coast, we get a number of sightings that are also occurring. Um, you know, we, these are the major cities along the Pacific coast. So that includes Seattle, Portland, uh, San Francisco, San Jose, Fresno, Los Angeles. And your neck of the woods, San Diego. Yes, yes, and and again, we're going to get into this later because now you know we're right at we're basically right at the Mexico border, and I and I know there's a lot of information, a lot of activity going on there, and you have a lot of experience in that. So we're definitely going to spend some time on that in just a bit. Um, let's switch gears for a moment. I want to ask another guest question. Uh, this one comes from Progress 1928, who says. He would be interested to hear your input on the controversial Ray Stanford accounts and book. Okay, G- give me the name uh, title. <laughs> sure. Okay. So Ray Stanford. So I had to look this up myself because, as you know, again, uh, UFOs are not necessarily my particular area. But apparently uh, Ray Stanford was uh, someone who wrote a book, I believe, in 1976, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and I don't know, you may not be familiar with that account, um, but he, it was, uh, apparently it was a 1964, um, landing case in Socorro, New Mexico. Oh, oh, yes, yes. That's a fascinating case. So what Um, can you share about that? And, and why is there so much controversy, uh, around that, that sighting? Well, uh, there was a lot going on in the '60s um, that we that during that time, and Socorro case was very uh, inter- was very um, interesting because in that case we had a uh, a police officer, I believe his name was Lonnie Zamora, who was uh, on patrol that night. It was out in the outskirts of Socorro, New Mexico, and what he did was he uh, he had observed this object uh, that was 
had landed. Um, well, actually, it flew over, and he heard this noise, and he drove out. And when he arrived, he saw this object land. And then out of that, uh, there were two beings that were walking around. And then all of a sudden, um, they went back into the ship because once they, they, they knew they were being watched by Lonnie, they immediately, crafts just took off. But it left the evidence. It, uh, there was a lot of burnt, um, ground of foilage and, uh, on the, and then indentations in the ground where something had actually landed and left, left, uh, marks. And, uh, this became, uh, it grabbed the attention of many of the, many people, the media, as well as a number of the scientific community. This became part of what was uh, the the whole the o the other part of the, the scenario is uh, the Air Force and our government, Project Blue Book. We had uh, a famous scientist named J. Allen Hynek. He came out there as well and and evaluated it. Um, so uh, there. It was controversial mainly because at the time, I believe, uh, there were a number of skeptics out there that were trying to say, well, it was not a UFO, that it had to be uh, connected to maybe NASA or one of the lunar landing projects. There were so many excuses. But Ray Stafford has definitely uh, has done a lot more extensive research and a couple of other, other investigators as well. And these cases are, are the historical cases. Those are the ones that really fascinate me because they really don't go away. Right. You'll find other other clues to it. So uh, that's what I, I really enjoy about historical cases. Uh, and some that I've worked on with my co-author, Noe Torres, that uh, we can elaborate on in a few moments, if you like. You bet. So, and, you know, along those lines, something that I personally observed at UFO Con while I was there is there are a majority of, of genuine people who believe they have had actual experiences and and they are sharing those experiences and trying to get their story out there. And then there are those people who see those who are open and vulnerable and they just want attention. So they make up outlandish stories to see what kind of acceptance or reaction they'll get. And I witnessed that a couple times personally. So out of the thousands of sightings and and abductee claims, the, the sightings reports, the abductee claims. What is the process like to ensure that a claim or a sighting is legitimate? Well, it goes back to the, the our field investigator. Um, they're the ones that are out there um, gathering the information, interviewing the witness. Um, we have an extensive questionnaire. Uh, we basically look at the questionnaire that was submitted by the by the witness Mm -hmm. and it gives us a lot of information location you know what was the shape what time did it happen where did it happen what was the weather like at that time are there any other uh, geographic descriptions of the place so so you work as a as a detective gather as much information as you can and then uh based on the interview of with the witness and the amount of information then you can then you start compiling the narrative, and then our investigator once we, uh, has completed the case and then goes into a classification system that we will call either say unknown, you know that basically that whatever the witness saw was definitely something that was out of the ordinary, or it could be what what we call uh, maybe it might could be explained as an IFO and an identified flying object. Okay. That could be man-made. It could be weather, mm-hmm. or we may say it's insufficient data, where uh, sometimes uh, we can't get a hold of the witness, but um, there might not be enough information to really say what it is. So we may put it in that category, and then the other is uh, we could say hoax, and this is where a number of those are, are deliberately um, you were created to um, hoax the situation or people will will um, falsify information. So we get those, but not 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 a lot. Okay, great. Um, I, so that was going to be one so, of my questions. Mm-hmm. Like if if you had to give a, a guessment or sort of a, you know, I, I don't know how much information you have in front of you right now, but if you were to give sort of um, percentages, 
what percentages would you say that you receive are, are hoax or outright, you know, intentional? Uh, well, let me, in, in looking at their stats from last year, and I was just looking at statistically, I would say about 30% is unknown. That's a high, that's a very high mm-hmm. statistic, that 30%. Mm-hmm. Um, now, unknown being the category where there's actually <clears throat> something that happened. Uh, yes, yes, okay. that's, that's the category that we would 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 de- definitely uh, support that the witness saw something. Then as far as IFOs and all that, that's another 20-30% insufficient data. That's another 20-30%. The, uh, the, fra- the hoaxes, they fall around right between 7 and 10%. Okay, so not so that bad. Even though it's not that bad, but when you compare that to 30%, I mean, still, no matter what. And you know, all it takes is just one, right? <laughs> one, one case, and uh, and that's all we need. But you know, we get uh, so much data from mm-hmm. the amount of of what's being seen from from different parts of the world. But oh, right now, you had asked me a question earlier. Um, that uh, what about other hot spots in other mm-hmm. other other countries? And uh, primarily, you know, we do get a lot of uh, reports here in Mexico. <clears throat> in other parts of Latin America, I just saw something off the internet that was just sent to me that there's a seems to be a whole wave of sightings going on in Lima, Peru right now. Oh, interesting. I haven't I haven't had a chance to to look at what the latest, but Lima, Peru, and that part of the world has also had a number of uh, what we call oh, where we have so many different sightings in one concentrated area. So uh, over the years, uh, Lima has also uh, has, has had that. And then we have other parts uh, other parts of South America as well. So I'm sure beyond the Internet, as you know, Angela, there's so much out, out there. Right. And I get people yeah. who say, I get people who say, well, it's a hoax or is it real or not real? And, you know, that's always a tough question. I have to, we have to rely on our photographic experts. But then this falls into a whole other aspect of the investigation we have now today it's even more of a challenge with technology with the cell phone and we have now the with the um the cameras and people are have the ability to snap and take a picture of of an object and 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 what's amazing is that a lot of times people will take a, a picture and then they'll go home and or then look at it and see something flying around and Something that wasn't there, and so we get we are, we are send, you know, the people will then send that to us and report it. And sometimes it's a lens flare, you know. Sometimes they move the angle of their camera, their cell phone might be right against the sun, and sometimes that creates a glare, uh, and then we get this uh, uh, some sort of a an object that's created based on with the uh, the light refraction. However, sometimes someone will catch something out of the ordinary, and that really makes it quite interesting. So um, technology-wise, and then we got the, the, the thing that really is frustrating for us, too, is uh, there's so many phone apps that are out there that people could put in little flying saucers or, right. or little objects or... Mm. Or, or people or strange aliens, and then they send it to us, and you know it becomes it, it takes away from from our time, but that's just part of the part of the uh, comes with the territory. Sure, absolutely. Part of the challenge. Absolutely. I have another guest question from Don't Jersey Vermont, who asks if you believe the Cisco Grove case is legit. Are you familiar with Cisco Grove? Oh, absolutely. That's that's very nice to that person that brought that up. I wonder if he read my book. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I'll have to ask. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yes, uh, really a very interesting case. Again, it happened in 64, uh, and uh, it was a, a gentleman and a group of, of his friends were uh, doing deer. There were it was deer hunting season, and they had bows and, air, and arrows because that was the only thing that was allowed. You couldn't use firearms for that particular period of time. And this one gentleman, Don Shrum, uh, had 
gone cap- uh, camping with his friends, and then he went out um, on a trail. And before you know it, it got very dark. And then um, he decided to climb up a tree for safety because uh, there were bears and mountain lions and other predators out there. And his concern was for his safety, so he climbed up a tree, and it got really dark. And there, out in the horizon, um, he saw this bright light way out there, and he decided to uh, climb down the tree and start like a little campfire a little, as a signal. He was he thought maybe it might have been a helicopter or something. Well, this uh, object started coming to him closer, and it got brighter and brighter. Then he noticed something really strange, that there was no sound, nothing. And when he looked up, it was a large cylinder-shaped object just hovering above the tree. And that frightened the hell out of him, so he immediately climbed back up into the tree. And this object, uh, uh, all of a sudden, it released a smaller scout ship, and it landed. And out of it uh, came these small humanoids. Um, they were wearing almost like spacesuits. They were, which makes this case really interesting. And it was being followed by another robotic type creature. And they went immediately right up to the tree. And throughout the entire night, they were trying to get uh, Don down from the tree. Don kept on fighting them. He would uh, grab branches. He would light the branches on fire. He would throw them down toward the humanoids. And then he would uh, he would shake the tree. He went back and forth, and that startled those humanoids. They would run. They would step back. They were they were caught at all with this tree tr- tree moving back <laughs> and forth. Finally, this robot creature uh, emitted the strange vapor that came out of its mouth, and then knocked out Don. Knocked him out. Oh, hmm. uh, and, but part before that, before that. Uh, before they knocked him out, Don got really upset. He had three arrows with him, and he immediately shot those arrows at the robot creature. Something told him not to shoot him at the humanoids. Uh, they weren't doing any harm toward him. The real harm was coming from the robot. So he shot his arrows at it, and they, they would deflect off the robot. The robot would come back and emit another vapor up up toward the tree, and that's the one that knocked him out. But what happened was that Don was hanging. He had wrapped a, uh, a belt around the tree trunk and himself prevented from falling down, and he was hanging. And then when he woke up, he noticed it was, it was already Don. And so uh, he then climbed down the tree and went back to his campsite and went back and found his friends, and then he shared the story with them. And he was the story goes on because uh, he went to the Air Force, and the Air Force made a mockery of his of his sighting report. And there's a, there's it's a very interesting case. So yes, I definitely believe this case is real. Um, the gentleman Don um, was a very credible witness, down to earth man. Um, had a lot of great, uh, interesting experiences himself. This case was investigated by another gentleman um, who was Paul, uh, Paul Cerny, who was with MUFON. But back then, before MUFON, we had another um, large UFO organization called NICAP, which were the largest uh, during that time. And Paul had did the initial investigation. And then later, years later, I wound up getting the files. And then um, we were th- through another colleague. We were able to meet with Don and his family. And then they said, you know what, Ruben? We really, really want the real truth of what happened to my husband. You know, this is his wife. said, I really want the, uh, the people to know what really happened. A lot of, lot of times people out there, he's, uh, she was telling me, would, would get parts of the story and change it. But they wanted to tell it from their point of view. So at that time, my friend uh, Noe and I were were uh, working on other book projects, and then we finally decided to uh, work on on their specific project, uh, their book uh, about their their entire ordeal. And I, I something told us to do it quickly, and we finally got the book published. And then um, uh, Mrs. De- uh, Shrum had then passed away from cancer, like within three months. Mm. But we had fulfilled that 
that their you know her wish. And so just recently we lost Don Shrum also from illness uh, about uh, two months ago. Mm. But uh, they were very very uh, uh, reliable, credible witnesses. But most of our books are we we, we interview people that have had. Um, their own encounters. And although it's historical, I think that that many times it's still historical cases that just don't go away because there's always other bits and pieces to the evidence that we add on. So it's one of my favorite books. I highly recommend it. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you for sharing. And, um, and, you know, it's always great as well. It's one thing when you sort of read this stuff online or you see it third, fourth, fifth hand or what have you, but when you're actually able to speak to the people, firsthand and when you know the people when you're able to interview them that takes it to a whole different level oh absolutely angela it does uh you develop a report yeah uh, yeah exactly and you can see what kind of person they are in general you know because you can tell a lot about a person with their daily interactions and and their character how they are so on and so forth now i have an outstanding guest question from ashamed of my chap he says i'd like to know what he thinks, and that's you, I'd like to know what he thinks about the idea that at least some aspects of the abduction phenomena could be something to do with spontaneous DMT release in the brain, that we are capable of traveling to another dimension non-physically is, for me, a possible explanation for some of the experiences recounted by people who claim to have been abducted. What do you think about that, Ruben? Oh, there's always a lot of different explanations about this whole abduction scenario, and it gets really complicated. Um, but I think, again, going back to what I was mentioning earlier is the, in the actual uh, interview, you look for other signs. You look at what the, uh, it's been very traumatic uh, experience for them. What was it that they saw? What they, uh, you know, can you describe what happened to them? We do have a very lengthy questionnaire um, that will help us get an idea about the person and as well as what he had experienced. And many times it it goes beyond our, our, what were our limits of of training. And this is where we might rely on a medical professional or someone who's involved in hypnotherapy if that's where the session goes. So again, it it all it all depends. I do belong to an organization called Opus. There's a number of other organizations similar to ours, where we try to provide uh, resources to these people. <clears throat> you know, the, whether uh, it could be uh, trained professionals, and and that's what's interesting is that we are starting to get a number of people that are skilled in, in their professions from all var- variety of disciplines, people that are in the, that are uh, MDs uh, or in the medical field, and they can recognize the fact that uh, that, that, that person, this person uh, shares something that is normally not part of their character. You know, they will describe something just totally out and then, then from there, we start putting the pieces together, and, and then it leads into a whole other aspect to this uh, phenomena. Um, Angela, it goes into whether or not it's uh, affected their families, you know, or whether it's a, it's an abduction process that's been inter-family generational. Um, it, it's really one of those cases that uh, it's amazing, because sometimes uh, you get some insight again who are these people what sort of techno- technology are they working with and and then the other question is why are they have such an interest in doing in this whole abduction so it's it just one of those real complicated areas that uh, have so many interesting theories to it yes and that's part of the whole investigative angle here is again what's really happening what is what's actually occurring and, and this is what your life's work is all about is getting down to the bottom of that Oh yeah, I, and I've come across some really interesting cases over the years myself. I one of them was uh, it's more related to Mexico, and um, it was real interesting when we were down there. There was a young boy, it was Claudio, and he started to share his experience with us. And he said that he thought, he thought and they lived by close to the Val 
volcano there. There's a major volcano, Mount Popocatapetl, which is um, active and has a lot of myth and lore as well as lots of uh, history of UFOs and lots of other strange things that is going on in that area. This young man was about 12 years old at the time, and he said that both he and another another one of his friends, they were... Uh, they were they were uh, herding some goats, and then all of a sudden they saw this bright light. And then when he looked up, he saw these three beings. They were with large heads, wearing tight-fitting clothing. And he noticed that one of them had like a beard, a small beard on its chin. And that being started to talk to Claudio telepathically. And he told Claudio, he said, that there would be a war in New York that would cause the entire world to go on alert. And uh, I interviewed this kid here about in 1996. Wow. And I have have his tape. And then we had another television crew uh, that went out there. There was a a radio, I mean, a uh, strange universe that was a paranormal uh, television show. That uh, that also aired back in '96, '97. They went out there and they also interviewed him, and they told and he told them the same story that there would be a war. Well, what happened was the prophecy came true. Yes, it certainly did. 2001, mm-hmm. you know, the twin towers and and that, and uh, Claudio was uh, a young this young boy didn't have very much education. He couldn't even tell you where New York was located at. Wow! But uh, he definitely. Yeah, those are the kind of the little interesting things that happen. And then, of course, uh, currently, my field investigators are, are really are doing a great job, and they are um, um, and they say submit the reports. Uh, many of them are, are are like lights in the sky kind of deal, but once in a great while, uh, we get something that's really odd, you know, where we have an object that may land or an object that may make some strange interactions and really affects the, the, the witness or, or and, and as well as the witness family while they're observing it. And the most, and the ones that I really also focus on myself specifically are uh, many of the military. We get a lot of people that have been in the military that have retired and slowly they start sharing their stories with what, what happened. Yes. You know, going back to Cuba, going back to Cuba, <clears throat> we had a case that was submitted to us just recently the uh, Marine Guard, um, this gentleman was stationed in Guantanamo Bay back in 1968 and 69. And uh, he starts sharing his story about these UFOs that were coming out of the ocean and flying right towards the direction of Guantanamo Bay. And these guys saw these really strange uh, lights and sphere-like objects that were close to like 300 feet from where they were located. And this kept going on and on. And so he, re- he started sharing his case. So that's one of them that are, that's also would be seen on a website. So we get that. And then one of my favorite areas are pilot sightings as well. Right. And yes. So uh, there are a lot I'll of those. Yeah, I, I was going to, yeah, definitely. I want to follow up on that because um, th- those were a few that caught my eye as well. Uh, I want to talk about that a little bit um, when we, I want to talk about uh, nuclear sites, UFOs and nuclear sites in just a few minutes. Um, I have another question. Uh, This is sort of a question and comment. Uh, This is from Up All Night, who says, uh, why does every video have to include those weird music, uh, the weirdo music that instantly discredits any information put forth? He says, the weirdo music... And sound effects immediately makes my eyes roll. Let's not even get into the whole Mothership Productions thing. We need a more adult scientific approach and to be a little more respectable than this tongue-in-cheek approach we have now. Most MUFON videos do not contain too much of this stuff, but too many others use the MUFON name and really go Star trek on it. We need to get serious. Uh, we need to get on a serious note and begin to be taken seriously. Uh, if you have uh, a video of people getting run over, it would be shocking. Take the same video and slap some Benny Hill music to it, and people are slapping their sides with laughter. Uh, the music sets the tone. So what's your input on this, Ruben? What do you think? Well, that, that goes back again to what I was talking earlier about the cell phone and technology. 
now we have Photoshop and we have people who submit <clears throat> these videos and it makes it really tough. But then, you know, some want to be a Hollywood producer, so they'll add their special sound effects and their dramatic entry, entry introductions. And so I always, uh, always stay caution with that. Um, and there's a lot out there. Uh, when someone does submit a report to move on, they may have a clipping of an object and it may be the actual sounds of them conversing with their family. And you could tell you whether or not they're really frightened of what they're seeing. Um, sometimes they get some very clear, uh, footage of the object and sometimes shaky it just depends on what where they're at if they're driving or they're walking and not it not everything again it just depends how quickly someone could respond these objects move rapidly right across so it might be too 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 late for someone to react but i definitely agree uh <clears throat> with that person is uh we get a lot out there and it's it's all part of the entertainment there's just so much out, out on youtube again just i would just say use some discernment Excellent. Excellent. Now I'm going to switch uh, gears a little bit. I want to start getting into some crop circle stuff and uh, start that off. We have a question from Stan in San Diego who wants to know, what do you think about the Chibolton crop glyphs? Mm, Chibolton. What year was that? That, Because there's, there were several, but if I, if I think it's connected with the one that may have a physical, like, like a face to it, um, am I, I'm, I'm a little um, unclear which one in my mind, because there are several that were that came out in that area. But regardless, I, I, I think that as far as the crop circles, that's another part of the, the evidence. Certainly there's people out there that do create hoaxes. They're very good at it. But uh, there are ones that are just totally unexplained. I've been in a couple of them. Actually, I've been into approximately over 100 crop circles. Uh, in England and here in the United States as well. And uh, it's really mind-blowing. You look at the the size and the enormity of these formations. I, I, I don't know if I, I don't know how much time we have, but uh, that's a whole, that's a whole other topic. I know there. you're going to have to come, you're going to have to come on the show exciting. again. So we can get down into some details on some of this stuff, but uh, just really yeah. quickly, I guess what I would ask you about the crop circles would be, uh, in all your years of crop circle research, what has been the most convincing evidence for you that, that uh, of the crop circles that are not the hoaxes or the man-made um, situations? So I, I guess, in other words, to put it another way, some compelling differences between actual crop circles and those that have been proven to be a hoax. Well, we've had some pretty interesting ones here in California over the years um, that have also um, appeared in, on private property. I, and I think that one of the things is that when these formations appear in an area where they're not that easily seen, and you know, it's only when they're discovered by farmers uh, or people that are aware, well, out there in the property, and you ask yourself, then why would someone go into so much effort to create a crop circle, knowing that maybe it may not be seen, mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden, boom. And we've had a, n- a number of those as well. Uh, I would say, again... Uh, in, in all, all the years uh, that I had a chance to go in them, it, it, I, I, there's still so much to learn. And it, 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 just looking at the complexity of these formations, whether they use fractal geometry or, some, or uh, again, a, a spiritual, uh, um, there's a spiritual connection that often that also is associated with, with these when people who go into these formations actually feel a change happening to them, almost a transformation. And uh, actually, we've had chances to go into these formations with some scientific gear, even little things like your cell phones and your cameras not working. Uh, that's happened as well. Mm, yeah, but, there's um, been, uh, I believe there have been reports of heightened radioactivity at some of these sites and uh, evidence of charring where it hasn't burned the fields, but there's charring right around at the immediate Location of the yeah, that's circles. that's something else. The the types of energies that are that are one may may try to find out what type of energy are these uh, formations being formed. We we don't know specifically, but they're getting. Um, yeah, I'm sure some of the other crop circle researchers may have their points of view. Mm-hmm. Everyone has their point of view here, Angela. Yes, you know, it's certainly. always interesting. Uh, 
no one's really a true expert, but we have some very good people out there that have done spend years and then have a dedication into the research and have looked at, cross-examined, and have some pretty good ideas. But maybe someday we'll we'll have it. Yes. I think we do. <laughs> we just yes. have to go through the books, uh, the statistics. Uh, just depends on what. To me, I, I know they're real. I would, I would not spend 25 years plus with MUFON or 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 that amount of time in all the other research that I do, but uh, I li- I like to also tell ask people to you know again go back to MUFON.com and if you're interested in our books, uh, by all means please look at RoswellBooks.com and uh, my friend Noe Torres and I we've been very busy over the years on tr- on looking at crash retrievals. That's a, that's a whole other topic. Yes, there, absolutely. Let's talk really quickly. I want to ask you about chupacabras. Do do chupacabras fall under the purview of cryptozoology, or are they extraterrestrial beings? What what do you think about them? Well, it's interesting. My first introduction to chupacabras was back in 1994. I was in Puerto Rico, and uh, that's where the phenomena was first reported, these strange creatures. However, there's been reports of other creatures as well, but this one was more of a um, of a blood sucking creature that somehow um, they found lots of goats, a lot of uh, farm animals that uh, had the blood removed. Mm-hmm. You know, there were holes kind of, uh, that were they, they found in the goats or in the chickens, and uh, also in cattle. Yes, They're very rare, but that was really weird. Mm-hmm. And so it was in 94, and then gradually we started getting the whole chupacabra phenomena increasing in other parts of Latin America, primarily um, in, uh, in Central America and South America, some in many of Mexico as well. Um, maybe there's a connection with weather, I mean, with warm weather, because mm-hmm. um, that, that might be it. But, oh, my God, yeah, this, it was fascinating when we were, when we were out there. In the uh, year, uh, year 1999, we did a, uh, a documentary with the, uh, with the Learning Channel. It was titled Monster Hunters. Yes. And there was an excellent uh, documentary that was done specifically on about the Chupacabra. And um, it's still, you know, you can still purchase it. I even had a group of remote viewers working with me on that. And uh, that's another story. I know. Story. <laughs> <laughs> but I have to have you on as a weekly guest. <laughs> so I'll have to look up that documentary. That's great. I'll, I'll definitely look it up and get some information there. And Transpersonal Radio listeners, uh, be sure you check that out as well if you have a fascination around that. I certainly do because, for me, that's one of those phenomena that, that phenomenons that stood out that was, um, well, rather unique. And uh, how it – go ahead. Go ahead, please come I'm no, it's just it's just sad. As you go into doing this UFO research, sometimes it spills over, and you start uh, also uh, getting information from these people who report of strange creatures and that, and uh, or or they see something else out of the ordinary that mm-hmm. is more probably paranormal related. Although our focus to move on is into the whole UFO phenomena, yes. but then again, we're dealing with a phenomena that it's. So strange. I, I absolutely, and and so one of my questions, you know, is like where the crossover goes, or I shouldn't say questions, but one of my curiosities is where that crossover happens, right? Uh, so let's talk really quickly about uh, UFOs and nuclear sites. Now we have a, a lot of history around there. Um, you know, we have the the, the Big Sur UFO incident of 1964. We have the 80s UFOs over Chernobyl. We have the 1990s reports of UFOs interacting with or intervening around the IBCM silo sites, and we have reported activity supposedly around Fukushima, although that hasn't been confirmed as far as I know. But my question really is, um, in light of all the recent increased activity of Kim Jong-un in North Korea firing missiles and ramping up military exercises, have there been any increased reports of UFO sightings in that region? Oh, in the North Korean area? Yeah. Or specifically in that, yes. uh, not that I'm aware of. I've uh, got to, well. It all depends. Again, our 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 information comes through the internet, through the database, mm-hmm. and sometimes that uh, we take it for granted, right? And we think, so wow, the internet's worldwide. Well, it's not. Sure. You know, a lot of countries still may not have the means to 
uh, have access to Wi-Fi. But, uh, and, and then again, it, it also depends on what kind of country you live in. You know, there might be restrictions on what kind of information that yeah. could be sent, Fair enough. sent out. Yeah. So when you're dealing with a, with a, with a communist regime, you may uh, not get as much information, although it's there. You know? mm-hmm. And we may hear about it through other, other connections, either through China or India right. or either mm-hmm. somewhere else connect, connections with the Far East. Interesting. Yeah, that's a good point. Now, uh, so let's turn to an area quickly that you have a lot of expertise in and you've been doing a lot of research, a lot of work. Uh, Mexico's Roswell, that's not something we hear much about. We hear about, you know, 1947 Roswell in New Mexico. But what about Mexico's Roswell? Well, going back to the um, crash retrievals, one of the documents that we had uncovered was known as the Denim Report, and this was based on a UFO that crashed into a small airplane. Mm-hmm. And this document was written by military, we believe, by someone with military background. And it was through that document that we found out about the crash of the UFO and how there was a retrieval team from Mex- of Mexican soldiers that went out and found the, the airplane, but also found the disc. And throughout this whole time, they were being monitored by spy satellites and reconnaissance aircraft from the United States. Then all of a sudden, then the soldiers, the convoy that they carried the, the saucer on, had immediately stopped. And then there was another flyover of a reconnaissance plane. And then they immediately saw that there were a number of dead soldiers laying on the ground, which then there was a another team that left out of Fort Bliss, a group of helicopters that went immediately into Mexican airspace and they retrieved the, the small saucer and it took it back across the border. And uh, this case from here, when Noe and I uh, started to investigate it, we started finding a whole other connection. We found out uh, of other UFO crashes along the Texas-Mexican border. And we have about five or six different cases at, at different times. Why that is, it's, that is something that we're truly, truly, truly trying to look into. Fascinating. But, uh, Fascinating. Angela, so why so many crashes? But we've written several books about that as well from the other cases. Excellent. Excellent. So, uh, Ruben, what are uh, the current UFO conferences coming up that people would be interested in attending? Oh, well, one thing, we have a big... Uh, uh, conference coming up uh, in Orlando, Florida. We have the symposium, the MUFON symposium that's going to be held in August, uh, I believe the 24th, 25th. I'm, I'm, I may have, I may be wrong on those dates, but if one goes to it, uh, every year we have a symposium with interesting speakers and that will uh, share with the audience their latest research. We have a great lineup. I think the theme uh, is UFOs and in the ocean or UFOs underwater, something along those lines there. And, um, you know, again, one, one could look at it. So I highly recommend uh, that someone, you know, that people look at our website. And in that, too, they'll find, you know, if you go to our, our website, Northern California MUFON, NorthernCaliforniaMUFON.com, and go to calendar, and then you can see all, all the interesting conferences that are also being held throughout the United States as well. Fantastic, Ruben. And how do people find your books uh, and information about you if they want to reach out to you or ask you questions about what you have uh, going on in, in your local chapter? I, I, am on, I am on Facebook, so people could get in touch with me on, on my Facebook. We also have a Facebook page for Northern California MUFON as well as with MUFON.com. As well as we have our websites at MUFON.com, Northern California MUFON.com as well as our our books, our research with Millie Totas, which is roswellbooks.com. Excellent. Outstanding. Ruben, I just want to thank you again for taking time out of your busy schedule and spending some time with us and sharing this great information and insight on what's going on in the UFO world today. And uh, definitely want to have you back on the show because we have so much more to dive into. Oh, absolutely. Thank you again for the invitation. And I hope your audience enjoyed it. Thank you again.
Absolutely. And trans- yes, it was wonderful. And Transpersonal Radio listeners, uh, make sure you do go check out the websites that uh, Ruben provided. I will be providing those on the show notes as well on transpersonalradio.com, so you'll be able to find the information there. And uh, definitely check out his books, find out what's going on there. Ruben has years and years, decades of experience in the, <laughs> in the uh, area of uh, of UFO research and uh, paranormal investigation. So be sure to check out his information. And until next time, thank you for listening. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Trans Transpersonal Radio. If you'd like to suggest a future future topic or be a guest, visit transpersonalradio.com. Call the hotline at 619-800-6057 or like our page, facebook.com slash transpersonalradio.